Chapter 5 It wasn't just Otto walking through the fresh snowfall. He was moving through the saturation of a fresh start. Joyful feelings associated with his arrival in Vienna had made him rhapsodic. He'd slept so soundly that he'd been able to leap to his feet without feeling the oppression of his dream. Later, as he walked through the city, his step was jaunty. The chilled air he breathed, the dazzle of the sunshine, the snow itself and its childhood delights, it would all be synchronized to his pace so that Vienna could be worn like a perfect fit. Although he didn't care to dwell on it, the dream had distressed him. In it, he'd seen himself looking at his phone, about to call Marie. Instead, he'd selected an app he didn't know he had. It was called Double or Quits. As soon as it was open, the app displayed his bank balance. It told him he had 8,882 pounds sterling. In reality, there was considerably less in Otto's account, which was the only source he had to finance his future. Nevertheless, it was a welcomed feeling being informed that he had so much more to spend than he thought. He noticed the app's big red button, so he pressed it. Over the next few seconds, Otto's bank account became the subject of an all-or-nothing bet. The fun and games was accompanied by a ticking sound, during which the app's digital graphic of the contents of his account began to spin. As soon as he saw this, Otto knew he'd made a mistake. The numbers picked up speed. There might have been time to cancel, but there was no cancellation button. Apart from his savings spinning out of control, the only other graphic on offer was the big red button. He pressed it again, half a dozen times. In the final moments, before it was all over, he had two thoughts, both flavored by his desperation. On the one hand, Otto knew he was about to lose everything. On the other hand, he couldn't help feeling the hollow thrill of doubling his money. When the numbers stopped spinning and they all flipped to zero, he screamed. To see where he really was, all he had to do was open his eyes. He took a peek. The first thing that struck him was the sunlight. It was shafting around the curtains. He could see the desk. He saw the chair with his jacket draped over the back. He looked at the empty mini-fridge. The fact that he hadn't lost his savings to an app he didn't have produced an overpowering feeling of gratitude. He didn't know where he was going to live once he'd checked out. Otto couldn't afford to stay in a hotel more than a few nights at most, but he was suddenly joyful. He was back where he belonged. One satisfying swish, and the curtains rushed apart to reveal the sunshine. It didn't matter that he hadn't put his clothes on, or that he might be observed from the street below. If the room was radiant, the world was radiant too. He decided he might be radiant. There was only one snag he didn't know about. From the moment he got out of bed, Otto had been seeing through a veil of perfection, which is a way of looking that replaces vision with ideals. It was through this veil that he saw himself toss his phone into the air with one hand and catch it with the other. 
On the desk, he saw the card the priest had given him. He put the phone down, took up the card, and made a show of tearing it to pieces. He let the pieces flutter into the bin. Not in the least self-conscious, despite his stark nakedness, Otto then lifted his phone reverently with both hands as if the device was a bar of gold. Marie did not appear to be surprised. She may well have been expecting his call. Yet he could hear her consternation once she realized who she was talking to. She had no difficulty expressing it. She hissed at him. Whatever Otto wanted, he needed to get it out quickly and hang up. She was at work. She didn't have time for any nonsense. He obliged by speaking succinctly. He was unflinchingly open. There was a new gladness to his tone. The gladness stopped his estranged wife in her tracks. He told her that he'd traveled to Vienna to meet her for lunch. Among the topics he wished to discuss was his reintegration into the lives of their children. The fact is, Marie had been dreading this. Sooner or later she'd known it would happen. But she hadn't been ready for the evangelizing tone in Otto's voice. In the past, such cold splashes of delight in the patterns of his speech were always a bad omen. It had taken her nearly two decades to bury the details of Otto's eccentric ways, and she didn't like to be reminded of them so suddenly or forcibly. Why are you calling? I always told you I'd come back. The gladness was rich in tone. Had Marie been able to see inside the head of the naked man in his hotel room, it's likely she would have hung up. Otto felt this instinctively. A voice spelled it out in terms too concise for him to have come up with on his own. What is seen is never more than a microscopic fraction of what is visible. It was the voice of a moderator, gently reminding him that he was being somewhat overbearing. The effect was instantaneous. Otto tempered his elation. Without making any reference to their conflicted feelings, they arranged to meet at the Spitzenhof Café, which is where they had always been destined to meet that day. He dressed in the suit he'd come to Vienna in. He didn't like to put the suit on, but he did it without thinking. He compensated himself by not putting the tie on. The suitcases would remain unpacked. On his way out, he told the receptionist that he wanted to occupy the room for another night. The receptionist confirmed his booking. Neither of them could have known that Otto occupying the room for another night was not an altogether accurate assessment of the way his life would unfold. As they turned him into the street, the revolving doors blew hot then cold. It was sunny out. Thin drifts of snow spluttered over his path. The snow that Wednesday morning had swept around the base of St. Stephen's. Against the determined but cowed pace others were adopting, Otto's gait was loose and open. The trick for one dressed so unfavorably was to linger in every available patch of sunlight. He did this without too much discomfort, because the veil of perfection never feels the cold. Many of the buildings along the Graben 
were conceived in the headiness of empire. Each time Otto gazed at another Biedermeier facade, it seemed that an even haughtier spirit was gazing back. Behind those exteriors was an aging sturdiness that urged people on. In Otto's racing thoughts, the bygone grandeur dominating so much of Vienna's architecture was given its sharpest possible suggestions. He let himself feel triumphant. Things might have gone better had he understood that while wearing the veil of perfection, all critical faculties are suspended. Triumph was an emotion dangerously alien to him, yet Otto permitted himself several bursts. The energy impelled him to overtake a lone professional, marching ahead of him, puffing wildly on her next cigarette of the day. The snow was powdery. Shuffling through it was bracing in ways he hadn't known since he was a boy. It came with its own rhythms and sounds. Each step was like the punching burp of a tuba played to the clashing of tiny cymbals. The only person on the Graben with time to listen to any of this was Otto. Everyone else walked too decisively to appreciate the noises they were making. Even as he heard the pleasant crunching underfoot, he recognized that the walk he saw in others was the walk he used to have himself. It was more of a yomping stride, fueled by the demands of being employed and important. All that could be heard in that style of walking was the destination. With each step he took, what melted under Otto's feet was a life that had been regulated by a succession of legal arguments. It was a life scrupulously rehearsed in private, to be conducted in public at the behest of budgets and pressurized court listings. Every hastening step through the snow was a memory of that grueling time. How encounters with defendants were formally preset to run so seamlessly and how all that had been required of Otto was that he shuffle a line of impoverished humans along one of a selection of pre-configured pathways to punishment, all of them devised to further the pursuit of law and order. This recurrence had been so drilled into him that to discard it now and replace it with the prospect of meeting his wife again in Vienna's first district seemed sensational enough to dance the rest of the way. Two professionals stepped up from behind. They overtook from both sides. While one of them grunted acknowledgments, the other performed a self-absorbed monologue about the terms of a pay rise long overdue. Otto slowed to let them pass. He felt the first shoots of the headaches he used to have. The veil of perfection was easily disturbed. From now on, he would force himself to walk unprofessionally he would develop a new lilting stride. The new walk would use all his joints. Even his elbows would be involved. It would be more of a swivel than a walk. He waited until the professionals were well ahead of him. Only then did a pleasant voice dispel the fear that it had been nothing more than a passing cloud and he could shuffle on joyfully. Wandering in the snow kept triggering boyhood memories. There was a game he used to play when he was growing up. 
He called it Black Sea. It was played alone, with closed eyes. You had to decorate the dock with the first two images that came to mind. You were only ever allowed two images, but they could be of anything. Usually they were memories, but they didn't have to be. The idea was to make the images as detailed as possible. The winner was the image that was most captivating, by virtue of the fact that it was richer in detail. Otto's pace had become so relaxed, he could close his eyes and see himself in an old black and white photo. Marie had taken it with her Instamatic in 1999. His visualization of their togetherness long ago quickly became more precise. Even while he cheated by opening his eyes so he could see where he was going, Otto could make out what Marie had been wearing and what the weather had been like that day. He could relive the gestures they'd shared. He could even hear what they were saying. During the summer of 2017, when he'd met Izzy in London, she'd mentioned this particular photograph. It had been Otto's first face-to-face -face contact with his daughter in two decades. They'd only ever spoken on the phone before. What he was visualizing now was the one reminder of him that Marie had kept so their children would know what he looked like. While he'd all but forgotten that moment in the mountains, ever since Izzy had reminded him of it, Otto's memories had been piling up. The skills he'd developed as a boy to construct an image section by section in order to make it as detailed as possible were still very much intact. Periodically, to avoid bumping into someone or a lamppost, he squinted through one eye or the other. With almost closed eyes, he continued to work at the image of him that Marie had taken, increasingly absorbed with it. He saw the toy town view of Salzburg below them. He saw the green railing he'd been balancing on. Soon, he found his thoughts were developing a more pensive tinge, not in keeping with his uplifted spirits. When that happened, he shifted his attention to the grinding sensations his shoes made in the snow. It was a matter of listening out for anything that might amplify his sense of well-being. A second image had been trying to usurp its way into the space where the first image was. To begin with, it didn't get beyond a scratchy sound in the black sea. It sounded to Otto like the caw of a raven. Now, whenever he shut his eyes, this new image was stronger. It was him in the mountains, but it was in color, and it was in a different time. He didn't like what he was seeing. To abate his edginess, Otto started humming as he walked. It was a tune he knew backwards, but could never remember the words to. His humming became more vocal. He kicked at piles of snow, producing nonsensical noises to the melody of my favorite things. The sound of his voice in the cold made him want to walk more quickly. Not in order to arrive more quickly, Otto was almost there. Rather, he wanted to feel the fragile resistance of snowflakes against each step he took more quickly. 
If he was unable to skip along the street like the boy he longed to be, he might at least relish the compacting of snow under his ponderous weight. The conditions creating the spring in Otto's step were not of this world. They were the ephemeral manifestations of a veil of perfection he didn't know he was wearing. That Marie had agreed to see him during her lunch break had been a foregone conclusion, but that didn't mean it was any less surprising. In strangely brisk tones, both knowing they were destined to have a conversation which would be pivotal to both their lives, they'd arranged to meet at the Spitzenhof at precisely one o'clock. With a sense of nostalgia, Otto recalled that Marie would be half an hour late. He felt guilty about the advantages he had. He'd left her behind with two children to parent on her own. Although he had no right to want to be in her life again, it was something that was always bound to happen. If he felt a pang of shame, all he could do was ignore this obstacle of the head and gaze instead at the silver lining of his heart. As he hummed my favorite things, a burst of sunlight dazzled the glass in front of the cafe. It warmed the back of his neck. He approached at a renewed clip, inhaling the odors of diesel fumes and coffee, softened by the low temperatures of the morning. His eagerness gave off a sparkle that others felt. One customer, on our way out, smiled at him. However distant he and Marie may have become, he could very much sense the unbroken tensions between them. He hadn't seen her since 2016. She'd been with him in hospital for no more than a few days. They were both distraught then, and he'd been heavily sedated. He'd known she was in another relationship. Yet, ever since leaving Vienna, Otto had known that the tensions between them could only tighten. They could never snap. This was more than just a hope. It was a prophecy. He might have listened to the tender voice trying to tell him something as he walked. It was his own voice of doom. It was saying that wherever there's a silver lining, at its center there's always a dark cloud. The cacophony in the cafe felt like a hailstorm. The room was jammed with people arguing and eating. One customer had a dog at her feet. The dog was slurping water from a bowl on the floor. It had a long pink tongue. It looked up at Otto and woofed. Otto didn't have time to invest the dog's greeting with any meaning. He was staring at the priest. A waiter wearing a bow tie slipped by, balancing a tray stacked with plates of Wiener schnitzel and steaming buttery potatoes with parsley. The veil of perfection had fallen to the floor. It was lying at Otto's feet. What his eyes were telling him was not something he wanted to know. He couldn't move away from the door. He squeezed his eyelids shut. He opened them again. The priest was still there, sitting at a table at the back of the room near a stand overloaded with coats and hats. He glanced up from his book, more than halfway through now. He didn't smile or offer any other expression. It was plain he'd been waiting. He'd ordered coffee for two and two slices of pastry. Because Otto was unable to move his legs without a prompt, the priest casually gestured with his open palm at the chair opposite. 
Once again, Otto was treated to the spectacle of the strangely oversized ring. It seemed to burst in a flash of sunlight. Blurry Bodies I will now explain how it was possible for Anton to travel to the entrance of the cave and go inside it by doing it in the past. Like so many daring plans, this one was conceived in desperation. To be more precise, while Anton's desperation was real, the plan that came to him was not exactly conceived. It goes too far to suggest that he was able to conceive of anything or that his thinking about the unseen was a process he had any control over. All he could say was this. While it was true that he'd gone into the cave once and encountered a living statue of Heraclitus there, that had been beginner's luck. Since then, because he'd been trying too hard, Anton hadn't been able to get himself back into the one place he knew he had to be. The plan to do it in the past unfolded by accident. Then he died. His death occurred at one minute past two in the afternoon on Wednesday the 18th of February, 2019. The first thing he became aware of was riding in the mountains dressed like a Cossack. He had to look over his shoulder because he could hear me singing. It was then that he found himself being ambushed 137 years ago. The popping sound made his horse rear up. The first bullet shattered into the rock face to his left. Forced to crouch behind Oksana, he didn't know if he should try to make it to the cave or escape back up the ridge. As things were, he only narrowly avoided the embarrassment of a second bullet hitting home. Nor was it clear to him yet that he was already dead. If Anton was aware of anything at all, it was how exposed he felt. After he nudged her a few times, it was Oksana who led him toward the cave. But let's leave Anton for a moment, cowering behind his horse, trying to get where he thought he was going. Something unforeseen had happened, which requires further explanation. It was apparent that being dead wasn't preventing the writer from imagining things. For many, this will be extremely difficult to believe. It challenges the order of life and death as we've come to understand it. I wish I could be more helpful, but I can only relate to you my own perceptions, which were, which were always tightly bound with Anton's. He made me what I was. Nevertheless, my connectedness to him was a conundrum. We were forced into a complexity neither of us could make sense of. Our association had started in the unseen. Exceptionally, though, our inseparability never left it. We never actually knew each other. Other than the time when I tried to kill him in the mountains, we never even met. Unlike his earlier attempts to reach the cave, which had all failed because he'd been too self-aware, Anton's goal on this occasion was to have no goals. As he galloped along that mountain ridge, the trick he played on himself was to be in the year 1882. 
To confound himself even further, he imagined me trying to stop him going into the cave. He couldn't exactly plan this. To plan anything in the unseen was to guarantee its instability. Yet Anton knew how furious I would be. It was safe for him to assume I would want to stop him. Once the surprise of being shot at wore off, I suppose he must have felt relieved. All he had to do then was imagine he couldn't be killed by my bullets. The last thing he expected was that he should already have died of natural causes. In that liminal passing, Anton's continuing immersion endowed him with a more complete power to imagine anything. Even beyond death, he could imagine me shooting at him. He could imagine going into the cave if he wanted. The only thing that would be difficult to imagine after that was how to get out again. It took a while before he suspected he was dead. He knew something was wrong when he tried to check for self-consciousness. Only then did he discover that he had no self and was no longer conscious. He took to it like a fly to soup. Merging with a more absolute capacity to do anything made moving in the unseen effortless and fun. Rather than continue to suffer an ambush in the Western Caucasus in 1882, and in order to give himself a more convivial atmosphere in which to consider his next move, he took himself to his regular table at his favorite cafe. It is a peculiarity of the sublime condition Anton was in that he should continue to gravitate towards what he already knew. Even when his imaginings became unstable, they were always strictly informed by his prior knowledge of the world. In that world, he'd only written seven and a bit chapters of Otto and Flames. Yet his quest to discover what happened next would flourish. He would carry on writing about me, just as he would carry on drinking coffee. As if there was nothing untoward being dressed in furs, Anton imagined ordering a cappuccino with two slices of Engadina noose torte. Having settled down to review what he'd written so far, he checked his pocket watch. If the Reverend Henry Lansdell's timepiece was anything to go by, it was still one after two. He slipped the timepiece back into a handy pouch. His laptop was open. I was in the Spitzenhof Café. I'd gone there to meet Marie at last. Anton saw what was happening immediately and added the following sentences. As he chewed, he slurped his coffee. The coffee scored his throat. But Otto wasn't about to let his discomfort show. He liked these sentences. He wrote a few more in the same vein, but wrinkled his nose and decided to delete them. His ability to imagine what was happening to me seemed to be getting more sluggish. Sliding down a helter-skelter in the run-up to his death must have depleted him. He forgot how he came to be sitting in his favorite cafe. All he could remember was his wife telling him to sit up and straighten his papaka. Then he remembered dying. He rolled his eyes and chuckled. Never before had Anton been in a position to recall what it was like to pass away, never mind what happens after that, and how alone he'd felt, exposed on the ridge. It wasn't what he'd been expecting to happen. He remembered her galloping away then, 
He remembered other things, too. There was the statue of Heraclitus reading Otto in flames. There was the priest who'd shown him a passage in his book he hadn't even written yet. It occurred to him that this priest was a character who was neither as priestly nor as Mexican as he had at first appeared. The whirligig was speeding up again. There were too many thoughts to track. As connected as all these thoughts were, I must emphasize that none of them originated in Anton's mind. They simply accumulated there and lived together like a crowd of rowdy students. And because what he thought was relatable to every possible thought, much of it remained too blurry to make sense of. The only solid evidence he had that anything extraordinary had happened was the fact that 30,000 euros had gone up in a puff of smoke. The vista that opened out in all of this was me. Anton imagined me sitting at the cafe with him, actually sitting across the table from him. He saw my nostrils flare. He saw the gray flecks in my eyes spike out from under my normally sleepy lids. I was about to slam my fist on the table, a gesture reserved for those who consider themselves to be the brunt of some unfairness. Within seconds, the coffee service and the slices of Engadina Nusstorte would be launched into the air, powered only by the outrage I felt. Fortunately for both of us, before anything unpleasant could happen, the whole café was plunged into a silvery light. Anton had achieved this by staring at a spoon. In recent weeks, he'd mastered the art of replacing one aspect of things for another aspect of things. If he felt too confronted by something, the solution was to let his mind wander. It had a soothing effect on the nerves. But in order to obtain the best results, the distractions he used needed to be authentic. It was about being drawn wholeheartedly into a different view of things. The silver spoon was ideal. It was ready to be stared at to the exclusion of anything but the language of the observation itself. It had been set down with the concave side turned up. There, in the curve of the bowl, Anton marveled at the broken refractions of the café's chandeliers. It was pleasing to be able to distinguish the white and grey outlines of the windows reflected in the bowl of the spoon. He admired the decorative embossments along the curved stem. On the polished surfaces of the outer part of the bowl, he observed various markings that had accumulated over many years of table service. These imperfections formed their own patterns. He studied the tracery of so many circular hairlines. They ran across the top of the spoon, recalling the stirring actions made by tens of thousands of coffee drinkers, offset by a few deeper indentations produced by the rigors of frequent cleaning and drying. Staring at the spoon, rather than remembering my hostility towards him, turned out to be an excellent contrivance. It might have gone on forever, but outside the unseen, time and place impose their limits on everything. Within it, therefore, Anton tried to imagine those same limits occurring. It made functioning all the more feasible, even when the café became plunged in total darkness. Although it was one after two in the afternoon, 
If Anton wanted it to be, it was pitch black out. He only had to think about what darkness is. His clothes were damp. He flipped up his cape so that he could put his timepiece into an inner vest pocket. As he turned his head to stare at the ocean, he felt the gentle rolling of the ship's passage. It wasn't yet dawn on the foredeck of SS Calliopen, and in Anton's mind it was the middle of August. The first turquoise flush of a sunrise had begun to reveal a far-off horizon dappled by mountains. In those massive configurations across the waves, Anton could make out the western peaks of the Caucasus. There were others on deck beginning to stir. Mostly men, but a few female passengers as well. They all had blurry outlines. If he looked directly at any single face, it became indistinguishable. Anton was able to observe them more closely by keeping them on the periphery of his vision. They all wore hats and cloaks or dark overcoats. The women's hats had lower cylinders and wider brims. The men's hats were either sharply peaked or they wore pleasantly rounded bowlers. As Anton got better at using his eyes differently, it was the hats that became well-defined. Some of the passengers had propped themselves against items of luggage. Others were leaning against the superstructure of the vessel, their heads hanging at awkward angles. Many of them snored in a variety of rhythms. The snoring had been a wheezy chorus through the night, a dissonant drift to the gurgle of the steamer's chugging. When he spotted a steward in a white apron moving among the drowsy passengers, Anton waved. The steward was pushing a trolley, offering warm, sweet buns and steaming beakers of tea from a samovar. The mixture of fresh baking and salty air was spoiled by the occasional whiff of acrid smoke funneled from the turbines below. Rubbing his hands over his beard, Anton realized only now that he'd been lying on a slatted bench. He hoisted his right leg into the air to stretch it and was able to appreciate in the dimness a protective spat buttoned over a tightly laced boot. At the end of the bench, under his left boot, there was a book. It didn't belong to him. He sat up and straightened his cahill. The hat didn't quite match the camel tones of his cape, but it was a snug fit in the dawn breeze. As he picked up the book and flipped through it, a gust tugged at his beard. What he had in his hands was a well-thumbed edition of modern Russian poetry. The leather of the outer binding had become moist and was beginning to shrivel. Some of the pages were stuck together. Thinking he might present the book to the steward as an item of lost property, but curious to see if he could understand the Cyrillic text, he turned to a section featuring Alexander Pushkin. That Anton found himself reading the first stanza of Captive of the Caucasus came as no real surprise. The waiter wanted to know if he needed anything else. He thought about it. He did have a wish, as a matter of fact. It was to be able to go back into the cave where he was sure to be able to continue on his quest. He wished this even though he was dead and could be wherever he liked. Before he'd finished reading the first few lines of Oksana's favorite poem, it occurred to him that he might still be in his favorite cafe. This is what he read. 
Accept with a smile, my friend, this offering of an imagination set free. To you I've dedicated this exiled poet's song, this work my empty time has moved me to create. What was most amazing was that Anton should have been able to understand this text with such fluency. Until that moment, he'd only had a smattering of Russian. The notion that he must tell Oksana was a sentimental one. He could picture her surprise and how she would almost certainly refrain from expressing it. He thought of his promise to go back. His head rolled back then, knocking against the mirror behind him. His eyeballs were twitching. It was as if Anton had died all over again. The waiter took it in his stride. All of the waiters in the cafe knew he was an oddball. The one standing at his table now was more indifferent than most. His front teeth were yellow. The few strands of hair left on his shining pate might have been counted individually. As far as he could gather, the oddball customer appeared to have a strong desire. The customer's eyes were disconcerting. They were too large. The shaking head might have been taken for a nod. With a condescending grimace, the waiter accepted Anton's behavior as a request for another cappuccino and slid away to attend to it. Because he was no longer living, it took Anton no time to recover. He checked his timepiece again. It was one minute after two. Without knowing how he'd done it, he'd typed two sentences on his laptop. Nothing, Nothing happened, happened for a very long time. time. Had he not been a living presence in the black expanse, nothing might have happened forever. forever.